Good morning. It, today feels like a small group because I spent uh, Thursday and Friday of last week with Charlie and Sarah in an online uh, Zen teachers conference of 115 people, all on Zoom. And I was almost shocked at how well it worked. We had little breakout groups of three and four and bigger groups and smaller groups. And uh, it was very rich. And Charlie is the vice president of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. So he was uh, instrumental in making it work. So thank you, Charlie. Uh, this morning, I was sent um, some photos and videos of my one of there's a little new generation in my family. They're all my great nieces and nephews. Uh, so Ari is the oldest at 18 months. And I had a little video of him opening a package that Elska and I sent him. He lives in the country. So I sent him a little stuffed pony. And um, he had a little trouble getting at the package. But once he got it, he got it out. And he couldn't make sense of it. it came out tail first. He, he, he didn't see what he had until finally he turned it around. And it was a great excitement. And he can name the eyes and he can say nay. when the port. And then within five minutes, he's off to the next event. I know he'll come back to it. But this is the 18-month-old kid's attention span, eagerly reaching out into the world for the next thing and the next thing. And then I watch us. Reaching out and reaching out and reaching out. And this Sangha has been doing a great deal of reaching out lately, reaching out to grapple with our deep social problems. We're much more, Dojin has led the way. And the Sangha and the rest of us, many of us, most of us have followed, some already were as connected as she, into reaching out into the, our, our deeply problematic social world. Calls to us, we reach out. And we need to keep these reaching out activities grounded because we are of the earth, not merely on it. So we say, I live on earth, and that's not true. We live in the earth, and we are of earth. We are part of earth inalienably, and we are made of its little bits of dirt. I mean, at every level, we are dirt. We are earth at all levels. But when we think we live on earth, we're lords entitled to take what we want of earth. It may be with a hurried thanks as we reach on to the next thing we want. That's living as a plunderer. Because in reality, we are made of earth. We are one of many animated forms of earth. We are one of the ways this earth of myriad wonders expresses itself. What kind of expression shall we be? We are a, a form, an earth form, with immense gifts. Now, many animals and plants have hearts and minds. We have language. Well, so do the orcas, I gather. Language, hands, and memory. We have tremendous gathering of gifts. So how much do we assume that they're ours, that we own these gifts, and are entitled, therefore, to use them however we want? Owning 
divides us into lonely spheres where each of you is only in that little box on the screen. And it goes against the reality of endless reciprocity, endless giving and receiving the way of all beings on earth, the tide of giving and receiving that flows through everything, but that we often ignore. Being all of us of earth, we're all in relationship. And we ignore that so often to our great pain. It's sometimes hard to see the link that ignoring our endless relationship is suffering and causes further suffering. Because this is a universe of, universe of reciprocity and gifts carry duties. They call for a response, the call to make best use of your gifts and give back. So how much do we use these precious gifts with gratitude as something to be bestowed again, passed on to others? This all came up for me this couple of weeks ago when I came across an old favorite poem of, of, uh, by Rainer Maria Rilke. So in the early decades of the 20th century, Rilke wrote fine, passionate poetry, love, impermanence, the interwoven nature of all things. And he's often claimed as a Buddhist, by, uh, as, a, as a fellow traveler. One of my favorite translations of Rilke is by Joanna Macy and a friend of hers. And Joanna is one of our most senior active Dharma teachers at this time, Western Dharma teachers. So he wrote this wonderful poetry and then the World War I happened and he was silenced by it. Uh, he was actually pushed into the, forced into the army um, to his great distress and friends managed to extricate him from that. But for a decade, he lost his poetic voice. He was so overcome by the horrors he was experiencing and horrors around him that others were experiencing while he could be in retreat from it to some extent. And then he found his voice again, full of gratitude for being of earth. And so I want to sort of shape what I say today on uh, the last section of one of his poems from the collection called the Duino Elegies, which was huge outpouring of poems that came almost daily. Once he found his voice, they came pouring out of him. So this, I put them in the chat. Um, these are the, this is the last section of his ninth Duino Elegy. And you can read it in the chat, but I'll, I'll read it to you too. He says, Earth, isn't this what you want? To arise in us, invisible? Is it not your dream to enter us so wholly there's nothing left outside us to see? What, if not transformation, is your deepest purpose? Earth, my love, I want it too. Believe me, no more of your springtimes are needed to win me over. Even one flower is more than enough. 
Before I was named, I belonged to you. I see no other law but yours. And know I can trust the death you will bring. See, I live. On what? Childhood and future are equally present. Sheer abundance of being floods my heart. Life and death are not two. He links them so intimately in the poem. And we tend to think of life and then sort of allow death as an afterthought, but he reverses that, right? Not understand, accepting death, I can, I can really fully avow I live. Otherwise, our I live is always shadowed by the unacknowledged reality of death. Life and death are not two, and impermanence is transformation. And transformation is a wonderful word for impermanence. The endless change because it, it, it brings us closer to the creative quality. And according with impermanence, he's talking about not just acknowledging something as a sort of theoretical or abstract idea, but bringing it into his own being, into our own being, acknowledging that it is already our own being and living in accord with that. This in accord with is from the earliest, earliest teachings of Zen. Bodhidharma, our semi-mythical and semi-historical uh, original Zen teacher in China, said that according with the Dharma is our practice, being fully in accord with. And that struck me about 30 or 40 years ago and it stayed with me. So there's, there's no neutral. We're either dancing the tango of impermanence or we're denying it and resisting it and thus denying life, our own life and each other's. In, in, the current, in current political terms, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And that's restated in uh, Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's to say, it's to stand up against racism. Either you're standing up against racism or you're part of the problem. And we've just been learning, those of us with white privilege, how true that is, how important it is to see that. So one reason we resist, one of the big reasons we resist impermanence is because we will each inevitably vanish. Life is, uh, Rilke says earlier in this elegy, uh, he says, once for each, only once, once and no more, just once, never again. And so a hunger drives us, he says. We want to contain it all in our naked hands. The once scares us and leads us to grasping. Leads us into such dark places, rape of the planet, white supremacy, the increasing parade of pathogens emerging through our fearful 
grasping actions. But after Rilke, after he describes life as just once, never again, he asks, why do we keep running from the fate we long for? He's not saying we long for death. The fate we long for is belonging. He says, he answers his question. He says, why do we keep running from the fate we long for? Because simply to be here is so much. And because what is here seems to need us. The fate we long for is knowing ourselves connected, belonging, surrounded by our kin, each other. And we run from it because the interwoven life of belonging is a life of impermanence and we fear and misunderstand it. We long for belonging and foolishly try to hide from impermanence. And so we're always divided from ourselves, from each other, from all beings by this tension in us. Because we don't see ourselves, we're practicing Buddhists, we don't see ourselves as reject, rejecting impermanence and each other, but we live with a tension in us between accepting and belonging and rejecting and life and death. And that tension divides us from ourselves and each other when we're, when it's, especially when it's unacknowledged. Nothing wrong with tension is, is a fact of life. And the solution that Rilke points to, good Dharma teacher that he is, the solution to our dilemma of longing to belong and hating to be temporary is love. It's intimacy with what is. It's awe and it's gratitude. It is transformative to love what is transient. Now, we, we love that in the dewdrop. We love it even in the dawn and sunset. If, they were, if the world were constantly at dawn or at sunset, it wouldn't draw our eye. It's that movingness of it. It is transformative to be intimate with, with what is transient. For which we have to fling away our resistance, our clinging, and our lies. Which... All of these delusions require that we see them because you cannot really fling away what you don't know is there. Flinging away is another one of Rilke's images. The flinging, he said, flinging away the nothing that we keep grasping at. To keep flinging away our old definitions of things, of ourselves, of our place on this planet, on our place in society, our names, what we mean by it all. To keep flinging away our old definitions of who we are, of what our purpose is, so that we can praise the world even as we sorrow for its travails and terrors. Milky says, what, if not transformation, is your deepest purpose, dear Earth? What is your, what if not transformation is your urgent command? And impermanence is the engine of this ongoing transformation. Impermanence is the engine of life.
the reciprocity is the way of beings that are at once separate and unified with that tension that isn't only a tension because the individualness and the unifiedness also work together when we divide them in our with our binary mind we see individual here and communion there and they're separate and divided or maybe often fighting with each other but in reality each is made of the other the individual is made of the community the community is the individuals earth what is earth if not us all of us what are we if not earth Reciprocity knits together our individual and communal natures. That's a way we can, they're all already knitted together, but in our minds, they tend to be separate. So if we see the giving and receiving of reciprocity, that is a knitting together of our individual, cherished but separate and painful, and our communal, desired but feared other side. One of the greatest hindrances to, um, to living our reciprocal nature fully is the fear that if we are fully reciprocal, we'll lose ourself, lose our security, or both. But the reality is that we lose ourselves and we lose our security of the forms that there is, are when we shrink back from reciprocity and its intimacy, its love, its awareness. Rilke asks, Earth, isn't what you want to enter us so wholly that there's nothing left outside? Because the threads of interconnected life are often invisible, and so we forget to take them into account. But it's the opposite. Earth is invisible because it is already us. It is who we are through and through. So remember, we are not on Earth. We are of Earth. In that story of being put on Earth as favored beings, we've taken that as permission to dominate the Earth and to devour heedlessly. But we are not put on Earth. We are of the Earth. As Rilke says, before I was named, I belonged to you, to Earth. And this, this echoes our foundational Soto poem, The Harmony of Difference and Sameness, which says that while the light of day is needed for the clarity of discerning differences and naming things, darkness is equally essential as a realm of wisdom. It's the wisdom of non-separation the wisdom of intimacy, the wisdom of rivers flowing on in the dark out of sight. So in our awareness and fear of being transient beings, we're attracted to what feels sturdy, stable, and steady. It's understandably so. We want to be reassured and safe. And days begin, roll forward and end, often with not a lot of visible change. 
So we are lulled into believing a larger story of this kind of steadiness. And that very story undercuts the steadiness, the deeper steadiness that we seek. Because it's false as a large story. That everything rolls along, yes, but that that means that what happens today is going to happen tomorrow and tomorrow will not, day after will not be much different. We can count on that. That's not a reliable story. The truth we seek, the belonging, is challenging for us short-term beings, but the in the end, truth is more reliable. Rilke understood this. He said, I see no other law but yours, earth. The natural law that we call dharma. Dharma means natural law. The law of earth. The natural law of dharma, of course, can be interpreted in, in many ways. In our time, it's extremely important for us to keep exploring the dharma of interconnected life, of inclusivity of everyone and every being mattering as our very life and of taking that in as a ground for reciprocity of action, giving and receiving. So we are, it's a dharma of reciprocity. And Zazen comes in here, Zazen always comes in, because while we're sitting not doing, we are truly doing life. We're taking part. We're being as fully present as we can, which is more than I can say for me or any of the rest of us most of the other time. All we're doing is being fully present in life and to life and with life and as life. So even when the mind is bouncing, we are here present as life happening beyond the mishigas of the 5% of our mind that's bouncing around. Zazen's attentiveness to the present moment in time and space is reciprocity in action. Zazen is taking part in life itself. Endless reciprocity, endless commonality. We're never alone when we do Zazen. It's a way, Zazen is a way we live out the reality of being made of each other, made of all beings. And we concretely and specifically live reciprocity with every breath, taking in the oxygen gift of plants, giving out the carbon gift to plants. We breathe in our food, we breathe out food for plants. And Zazen is a time we can be awake to this, knowing our participation. I read a lovely book recently that talked, among other things, about ceremony. This is from a Native American perspective. How ceremony focuses attention, and that attention becomes a vow, our intention to live in accord with reality. And in this sense, zazen is ceremony. Body and mind upright and present. There is a form of the ceremony. Attention that's inclusive, not a dualistic um, observation. Reciprocity of breath and life. So zazen is a practice, a ceremony, 
of intimacy and vulnerability. Ceremony is a way of saying we are enacting this with our body and mind in Zazen. We're enacting intimacy and vulnerability, which are the heart of love and encourage us to love better in more occasions. So the oneness that's interdependence, the oneness of the life of each of us, the oneness of all lives calls us to be more fully present and then more so again, because there isn't an end in that. It's a process. It's an act. And this, not just calming ourselves, is what we do in Zazen, completely beyond our conscious thinking mind and not hindered by that mind. Rilke says, even one flower is more than enough to win me over to accepting reality, earth, dharma fully. Even one flower, in one flower, we can see our essential nature, including the arising, opening, and fading of that flower. And in just the sheer gorgeous abundance of each flower. He says, I see no other law but yours, and I know I can trust the death you will bring. So what kind of trust is that? It's way beyond like and dislike. It's the trust of Hamlet in facing death in Act 5 of the, of the play Hamlet, where he knows he's going to his death. And he says, the readiness is all. The only way to be ready and the only way to trust is to trust both life and death indivisibly. To trust that transformation is constant, endless, and natural. That it supports our lives because it is our lives. And after Rilke declares his trust, I can trust the earth, the death that you, earth, will bring. He can affirm life. Next thing he says is, see, I live. I live fully here and now, where childhood and future are equally present. Life and death are inseparable, made of each other, made of joy and sorrow. We can't have one without the other. And we can have a full life with both. The more we hold the two as part of one, the less tension and pulling there is internally. Now, in equal measure to the open heart mind in which we find joy, the joy of transformation, where in one flower we see our essential nature, in, in equal measure to that overarching reality that is us, we have to bring specific attention to the myriad forms of trans- transformation, to each person, each fern, each bird, each social problem. And we 
can't do this to attend with care and concern and commitment to the endless heavy problems unless we attend to the joy, the love, the dance. Each requires the other. We have tools, we have teachings, and we're just beginning to refine skill in employing them, hoping that it's not too late in the life of humanity. So the Dharma is not an escape from violence and the culture wars, an escape from poverty and pandemics. At our best, we hold both the extremely disturbing particulars of suffering in our world and the largeness of being, the awe at living beings, gratitude for life, gratitude for each other. What will I give in return for this gift of life in a world of such depth and splendor? Well, I will vow to see the depth and splendor. But what will I give in return for this? We, we all fear to fall. We fear to fail. We fear to be shamed by our, our inadequacy. Because when we see our limitations, we mistake that for inadequacy. But the world won't send us away. Earth does not disparage us. Even at death, we will still be of Earth. And what we have done in our lives will continue to have its impacts. The farther we stretch ourselves, the deeper our rootedness in life and each other. The more grounded we are in Earth, the farther we can reach out our hands. Uh, Rilke said in one of his sonnets that he wrote about the same time, said, if we surrendered to Earth's intelligence, we could rise up rooted as trees. We're pretty good. Trees are so much more complex than we have ever given them credit for. So this mix, this combination of sorrow and loss, of love and, and love and gratitude, bring Rilke to his conclusion. His conclusion, where he says, sheer abundance of being floods my heart. Yes, in this world, this world of wars and famine, famine and climate crisis and political crisis and racism and refugee crisis, this world where those we most love will die, leaving us to grieve, enlarged by having known them, where we too will die. This world where we express our love, our abundance, our gratitude for the abundance and splendor of life and each other. We express our love by the care we bring to each moment beyond how problematic it be. Each moment in Zazen, each moment standing on the corner with a Black Lives Matter sign. 